if everyone's all right, we'll get going. Yep, go ahead. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty and the American dream, the best is yet to come. Build it. Joining me as ever is John Hall, Chief CEO, President, Birthday Boy of DeKalb County United. Hi, John. Hello, Nick. Thank you. Happy birthday to you. And this week we are joined by a new face, to me at least, uh, Fred Mathis. Hi, Fred. Hey, how are you doing, Nick? Good. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Fred, I'm reading off your LinkedIn page here. It says you are founder and president of FM Professional Soccer Consulting. With 25 years of experience in pro soccer, both domestically and overseas, Fred has helped teams in all si- of all sizes with season ticket sales and fan base building and attendance in multiple markets. Would you say that is a fair summation? That's a very close summation, except in the last six months. <laughs> the last okay. six months, uh, you know, my most of my uh, expertise has been in helping clubs to build their fan base and put butts in seats, as they say, and sell tickets and fill up buildings. Well, Mm -hmm. over the last six months, as you guys are very well aware, you know, COVID-19 has sort of taken over that and uh, changed it now into, uh, you know, social distancing. And most places are playing without fans at all, if they're even allowed to play. And, uh, you know, so it's been a little bit uh, uh, strange for me to have to kind of pivot somewhat out of what I normally do when I talk to teams and that. But uh, everything else, exactly correct. Excellent. I mean, we're we're super excited to talk to you on a personal professional level just you know in terms of what we could do for DeKalb um if anything but you know the purpose of this con- this podcast is to grow the game across the country we're not looking inward we're looking outward so we're hoping that whoever's listening to this can find some little nugget of advice or reach out to you on privately and you know take the conversation in a different direction but hopefully someone listening to this will get something from it so um without further ado Fred if you could tell us your background in soccer we'll take it from there Sure. Yeah. Well, as it said, about 25 years, uh, I, I started in the professional business side of it uh, the very uh, back in the mid 90s with uh, the World Cup as it uh, play, was played here in the United States. And there was uh, a venue in Washington, D.C., RFK Stadium that many people have probably traveled to and gone to soccer games uh, or American football games or uh, baseball games, too, as well. A, a very iconic building. It's, uh, one of the very first employees in Major League Soccer after I had uh, worked at the World Cup was I met the folks that were starting DC United uh, that was based right here in Northern Virginia, where I live now. Um, and I was able to help get that started uh, in those early years of MLS and an exciting time and watching the sport grow again after it had been sort of in a, about a 12-year hiatus after the old North American Soccer League had folded back in the, the mid-80s or early 80s. Um, so I, I took off with DC United. I was there for 17 years, all the way up until, uh, 2013, uh, when they had a little bit of an ownership change there. And as things go in any business, uh, the top executives tend to have to find their way somewhere else. So I uh, started to explore a little bit and I created my own little consulting company. And my first assignment was to go out to California and work with relevant sports 
in the International Champions Cup. And I just so happened to meet some folks while I was out there. It was a game that they were putting on between Juventus uh, and Everton um, back in 2013. And I happened to meet these guys from Sacramento that were talking about putting together a USL team up in that marketplace. And since I had grown up out in California and I still have family out that way, I talked with those guys pretty seriously. And they said, well, we'd love you to come out here and help us get this started. So I talked to my wife and uh, we did the cross-country commute again for uh, three years time while I was there and I helped Sacramento Republic get off the ground and really set a lot of records in USL and kind of put uh, the game on the map again in that part of the country to uh, eventually now they, they have a, an upcoming MLS franchise coming out in a couple of years. So I was part of that startup and got that going, came back from Sacramento and uh, started getting a lot of phone calls from people saying, wow, we love what you did out there. And we know that you had a long career at DC United we want to pick your brain for a few minutes. Uh, and uh, I started realizing after about six or eight of those types of phone calls that uh, picking my brain could actually cost people some money if I decided to charge for it. So I, uh, so I started a little bit of a consulting uh, uh, concept and uh, started to get these phone calls and set up assignments. I went out to Fresno for a few months and helped Fresno FC get off the ground. I went down to New Mexico in Albuquerque when uh, uh, New Mexico United got started and helped them do some some similar planning in that for a few weeks, uh, then met the guys in North Carolina, uh, North Carolina FC after that. And they liked so much what I was doing in that summer of 2018, this would then now, that they offered me a full-time position and I spent about a year there. Um, coincidentally, that year was up just about the same time that the lockdowns began with COVID and that. So I came back home here and as I just explained earlier, as we were getting started, I've had to shift my focus a little bit from how to put butts in seats, as they say, and fill up stadiums and, and uh, increase the fan bases for these clubs and build their season tickets and that into counseling them on more how to go about the social distancing, how to get reopened again, how to return to play, those sort of things. So uh, I've had to pivot a little bit in my last uh, year or so here, but uh, I've been involved in the game on the professional side, as I said, 25 years. Before that, way back when, uh, in uh, the dark ages, I actually played the game all the way up through college. I played at UCLA. I uh, was fortunate to play for the late Siggy Schmidt for a few years there um, and uh, had a, a, a unillustrious or a not very an illustrious <laughs> career, I would say, because uh, I never quite made it to the point where I probably could have played professionally. But even if I had, there wasn't a lot of opportunities back then. As I said, the NASL folded in the early 80s. That's just about the same time that I had graduated. Uh, and the, the only opportunities were the indoor game or regional leagues, and there wasn't any money in it at all. So, you know, I always said to myself that if I could get back into things again with soccer, if it ever came back around, I would do that. And that's exactly what I did. So, uh, you know, I've, I've always been involved in, in the game in some way and wanted to see it continue to grow. And as we were saying earlier, hopefully uh, through today, we can talk a little bit more about the growth of the game and where it stands today and where I think it will go in the next couple of decades or so. Uh, I don't plan to be around it forever, but uh, so far, so good. Okay. No, that's... So, interestingly enough, Nick, so uh, Fred and I spoke, you know, a while back and had a, a conversation, a kind of a meet and greet conversation, and, and I liked some of the things he was talking about. Um, even even what you said on a smaller scale, Fred, we've done the same thing where um, we've, we've we, Nick and I get uh, I, I don't know, probably me more than Nick, but we get people pick our brains. How do we do this? How do we do that? How do we do that? And, and we put together that, um, 
the new club packet for clubs at our level of, you know, this amateur level that if you want to start a club in your community, that's what we're trying to help people do. And then not only start it, we want to try to find ways uh, to help sustain long-term because it's great to be around for a year or two or three, but we, to really grow the game, we have to be around and create all kinds of things long-term. And um, so we've done the same thing on a smaller scale with our new club packet. See how I, I work that little plug in. Yeah. Do you it's like that, Nick? Beautiful. And it's then, um, and then the podcast though, as we've gone along, this as we tell the story then of successes and failures at our level and other levels and things. And, um, but I, I'm interested, um, I'm interested a little bit to know when you go out as a consultant to a club, um, and obviously you're usually working with much larger budgets than what we deal with, but uh, what, who are you working with? Do you, do you work with the owners directly? Do you work with, um, you know, front office staff operations? Do you get involved with technical staff? What's, what's, what's or, or a little bit of everything? Um, it's, it's primarily just on the business side. So generally if there's a CEO or a COO, someone like that, if there's a general manager that also uh, does the business side of it, as well as the player side, I'll work with them sometimes too. Uh, the only time I really get involved in the team side is when we start talking about community relations and, you know, the, the footprint of the club out in the community, as you mentioned, super word community is really behind just about every team that's out there, no matter what level, um, you know, that's, that's when you get involved with some of the players in that and how they can help expose the team or the brand out there in the community and, and ultimately turn it into uh, tickets, uh, sponsorship revenue, you know, exposure on, on different media outlets, things like that. But primarily it's working with the front office side of it. Uh, and again, my specialty has been in the ticket sales side, but helping them build out their staffing so that they have enough resources to go out and, and meet all the different parts of the, the marketing plan that they have put in place. And then how to maximize that, how to get tickets at the right price, how to get the stadium scaled properly, uh, how to build in any amenities that they might be trying to do for any sort of corporate type base or, you know, higher end type seating, those sorts of things. And I just use the experience that I've had to kind of work with them in their venues and also in their front offices to say, Hey, here's how we've done some things in some of these other markets that have worked well. What if we try it here? And without being too cookie cutter and saying, do a B C D and you will be successful. I have to kind of work with each market and say, okay, what have you tried before? If it didn't work, why do you think it didn't work? And are you open to trying it again, but maybe doing it a slightly different way? Um, and that's been a, a big challenge too, because sometimes people feel like, you know, the ideas they've come up with in the past were wonderful and fantastic. And then when they fell on their face, they just say, well, I guess it wasn't that good of an idea. Well, it might've been a fantastic idea. And that's what I worked them through. It's like, look, let's mold this a little bit and say, okay, if you tried something one way and it didn't go that way, let's try it this way and see what happens. Um, that that always used to annoy me about Wiley Coyote, you know, his <laughs> escapades with with a roadrunner. Yep. He tried one, he tried a thing, it didn't work, and he gave yep. up. Yep, yep. So yeah, I, I completely. Pers- if I know you said you didn't want it to be cut, cooker cutty, cooker cookie cutter. Oof, there, there's my British accent, mm-hmm. cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. But um, historically, is there are there is there a thing or things that you know do work, and it's just the implementation of them that varies and affects their well, your, your target audience is really the, I guess, the framework or the cookie cutter part of it, because pretty much every club is trying to establish the same thing. We, we mentioned that word community. You're trying to get out and meet your fans, but you've got to look at who those fans are and where they are, you know, and where they live, work and play is what we used to always say. Uh, 
particularly out in Sacramento, Warren Smith, who was the founder out there, that was one of his famous sayings is uh, we're going to build a better place to live, work and play uh, for people to come to the Sac Republic games. And that usually starts uh, at the first level in the youth soccer base. That's the biggest part of soccer in this country. And it has been for decades now that all those families that are out there with those kids that are playing on the fields, each of those kids has parents, each of those parents works in a different location. You know, you've got that whole community already tied together. So why not exploit that easiest part of the database that you may have built up, which are all your youth soccer players. They're very well organized, all the clubs that you work with in that. They've got names, they've got phone numbers, they've got emails, they've got ways to reach out to them, put offers in front of them and things like that. So that's one of your first places you really want to cultivate is that youth soccer base. The next is, as we mentioned, the corporate base that you've got to find out what companies are out there willing to support a club or, or a team as it is, uh, you know, what type of amenities they're looking for? Does your stadium allow for that? Do you have anything that you can offer them? Um, and you have to remember, too, that you're not always going to go and call on the president of, of ABC Company down the street and expect them to say, oh, yeah, soccer. We've been waiting for somebody to call us from a soccer team to buy tickets. They probably have tickets for the NBA team or the NFL team or the Major League Baseball or Minor League Baseball team that's in their area, but they've never thought about doing it for soccer because they're not soccer fans. But somewhere in that company, there's a soccer fan, at least one. There's probably a lot more. And usually it's the same people you met on the soccer field if you were working the fields on the weekend beforehand that you found that the coach that's run up and down the sidelines screaming at his kids is also the VP of marketing for that big corporation. So now you've got the appointment to go in and talk soccer with that guy or that woman. And they're you know, all of a sudden a fan. And now the company becomes a fan. So you've got that corporate base. Uh, the other side, depending on where your club is located, is the ethnic base. Um, primarily, that's a Latino base in most parts of the country, but there's other ethnicities in that, too, where you want to work into those neighborhoods and do it more in a very sincere, open, trusting way where you're not just hosting Hispanic Heritage Night. You know, you're actually working in the community. You're being part of their festivals. You're postering out all of the businesses in those areas. You're getting tickets into the hands of the influencers in that community making them just as much a part of your framework as anybody else is. Uh, and you build around that too. And then the other part of it that's really become one of the biggest parts in the last few years, or at least last decade or so, I guess, would be the young adult or millennial uh, marketplace or the supporters clubs. Um, that's all kind of that same framework. If you think about it, Major League Soccer has been around for 25 years now in this country, as we mentioned. So any younger adult that's grown up uh, over those 25 years has never known a time when there wasn't professional soccer, top level professional soccer. So now it's not just football, baseball, basketball, hockey, it's add soccer to that mix too, major league soccer. And then it grows from there. You know, you take those elements and you try and build up each one of those as much as you can. And the better teams have been successful in all four of those areas. Fred, I've learned more talking to you today than I have running this club for four years. <laughs> yeah. Because so, because you no, you've just you've just put it you've just put it very clearly and concisely. And and I think that one thing that I wrote down on my little notebook here is everything you said though is boots on the ground. You can't and this I was gonna talk to you about the this COVID pivot, mm -hmm. but that like that's exactly the challenge that we all have right now is I want to go put my arm around a hundred people at a bar and have a beer and tell them the story of DeKalb County United, but I can't do that. Right. So we all are trying to find ways that how do you re recreate those experiences? How do you go to that 
um, that ethnic festival? How do you go? I mean, the, you know, some of these things are just very difficult in these times, but we also, as our club has done and many others, use this downtime or this weird time to lay out a strategy for attacking these four pillars, which you just, you just grave. Everybody ought to send Fred a check <laughs> because I think, because, because I think that's it. You broke it down very clearly. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, I mean, you, you said corporate partners. Yeah, I got sponsors. We got all kinds of sponsors, but I've never asked any of them to buy a package of tickets. That's like, why is that so simple? And I never yeah, thought of you it. want them to be involved. You, you know, don't want I, just their logo on the wall. You want them to be in the, sta- in right, the stands, no. in the stadium, see the people that are buying their product, enjoying themselves and being part of it and getting to know them just as well. God. Yeah. The, 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 get on a plane, Fred, you need to get here now. Get on a plane. What, you know, you mentioned the COVID uh, timeframe in that. And, and I think what I look back on is the, the people that have done what I was talking about there and really established themselves and established relationships in each of those areas. This has not been a very difficult time for them. It's difficult because they don't have the regular revenue coming in from the day in, day out sales of tickets and, and other areas, but they've stayed in touch with all of these people through this time. And they're going to be fine when they come out of this, if they can survive through this, it's not too long. And they start to get their season tickets up together for next year. And they start to you know get their schedules together for next year. They're going to do just fine because those people are going to come flooding back. They're, they're missing it. They want to be part of this again. You can't just start up from day one and start trying to do all this now. As you said, it's very hard to go and put your arm around somebody at a bar or go to a supporters club meeting or that and, and have a whole lot of effect right now. But you have to start building it somewhere and you have to start thinking of those principles to get out there and work with them. You know, uh, I, I look all the way back. Some of the people that I learned from as I was growing up in the game and, and watching it because I was a big fan of the old NASL. Uh, my dad was the team photographer of the old San Jose Earthquakes Um NASL version, not the later MLS version, but way back in the mid seventies as I was playing. And one of the guys that I met during that time and, and heard a lot about what he had done was uh, Lamar Hunt, the late Lamar Hunt, great Lamar Hunt um, down in Dallas with the Dallas tornado. And he used to be notorious for showing up at practice, not to be the owner or the GM and you know yell at the coach and all that. He wanted to meet with the players after the game, after their training was over. And the one training, he talked about this story one time in an MLS meeting. He said he brought a rack of sport coats with him. And they weren't just any sport coats. They were bright orange and baby blue, which were the Dallas Tornado colors, with a Dallas Tornado patch logo on the, the front pocket. And he handed every, every player uh, their size jacket. And he said, look, this is going to be your uniform when we're done with training every day because you're still on my payroll and every afternoon we're going to go and knock on doors and businesses and we're going to go out to the neighborhoods and you're going to be an ambassador for the Dallas tornado. And he built that around the players. And you mentioned earlier, you know, do I work with the team side? I really don't, but only in the cases like that, where we really need to call upon the players to be the face and, and that of the team. Those are the sort of lessons that the teams that are now doing well have been able to embrace and get their players to get out there and do some things. And sometimes, yeah, there has to be payments made to players because of the collective bargaining agreements in today's game that you didn't have back then. But the right players understand their role. They want to be a part of that too. They want to see the club succeed because then they're going to be around longer and they're going to get better contracts out of it. So that's another element where, you know, reaching in and, and reaching out to the fans directly, you can do with soccer much, much better than you can any other sport that's out there right now. Do you think it's inversely scalable, that sort of 
not production, but those sorts of commitments. Like it's all very well for your man to say, "You're on my payroll. Let's go and knock mm -hmm. on some doors." But when you're talking volunteers and you know college kids or whatever that don't have a commitment other than the fact that we're offering them somewhere to play soccer, um, are those sorts of things? Is it possible to get buy-in? Yeah, I mean, you. When I say that, you know, you're on my payroll, I, that was kind of Lamar's, Lamar's yeah. words to us. I'm sure he didn't say that to the players directly. <laughs> but you've got to get, as I said, you've no. got to get folks that are dialed in, whether it's players or whether it's front office personnel or volunteers that are helping working your games in that. They've got to be committed. It's almost, you know, we're in a political season now, campaign season. The team is your politician, is your candidate. And you've got to support them and that principle like anything else, you know, you, you've got to go out, you know, show your heart on your sleeve, talk to the fans, talk to the people that are there, thank them for coming, being part of it all. They're part of the growth of this game in this country, you know, unlike any other sport that we were mentioning, you know, those other sports have been around for 50, 75, 100 years or more. Soccer really is, even though it's had kind of a few ups and downs over the, the course of time it's really just this past quarter century that it's started to take hold as part of the mainstream so we're still selling the sport first we're still creating soccer fans and you've got to do that by being right there in front of them we've said before that once they get into the stadium and they enjoy a game and they see the crowd getting into it they see the supporters chanting for 90 minutes and the sound and the you know everything else and then the build up to a a goal you know and and all of that and the excitement that, that's unleashed when a goal is scored that hooks people in. And if you can get them in the stadium once and you can have a decent game in front of them there, they're going to be back over and over again. You know, that's the, the nil-nil tie too. That's the hard one because anybody that comes in looking for, <laughs> for a big scoring game and you have a nil-nil game, they're going to walk away going, yeah, it was okay, but there wasn't any goals scored. You have to then start to take the, the education part of it and, and show them the nuances of the game. And they understand, you know, that, hey, a nil-nil game can sometimes be just as exciting as a, high scoring game if you're into defense and into goalkeeping and, and watching that. So then that, that's the pivot you have to make there to try and create fans out of those ones who didn't get to see the best experience the first time. But uh, even those fans will come back and give it another chance if they've had a good time. How do you, go on, Joe, sorry. No, no, I was going to, I was going to transition to a little different thing. So go ahead, Nick. No, I okay. I just want to go down the fan room one little, one little bit more. Is this, how do you create a fan culture? Can you create a fan culture? Is it something that has to happen organically from the leaders or can the front office in inverted commas? Well, you know, as you start out and I've been fortunate to be part of some very good startups with some very talented marketing people and that you've got to have a concept and a, and a, a branding sort of discussion before you even go out there. You know, what is your, your team going to represent and you know, how are you going to portray that in the media and in your advertising and all of that? So you've got to, catch the attention of people first. You can't just say, hey, soccer's going to be here and run a flag up the flagpole and expect 10,000 people to show up. Um, you've got to create that interest. You've got to kind of sell the game as well as this brand that's tied to the community again. And Peter Wilt's a big name that John, you and I talked about a lot uh, the other day when we were talking. Mm -hmm. Peter Wilt is famous for this, how he's created these brands and these communities that from day one, his focus is the community and getting people to understand what it's about and wanting to be part of that, you know, wanting to be part of that movement, if you will. And we did the same in DC when we started up there, DC United. 
no sports team had ever called itself DC before that, that played in Washington. It was always the Washington X, Washington Bullets that I used to work for in basketball. Uh, Washington Redskins now changed to the Washington football team. Uh, you know, they all had a, a city name, but not DC. We changed our name to DC United. And the name itself, United, was connotative of soccer, you know, Manchester United or any other United that's out there. But it told people right away, okay, it's soccer and it represents D.C. And then we went after the marketplace within D.C. and we did stuff on buses. We did stuff uh, on all the media outlets. We tried all kinds of new things. And this was long before social media where you could just put Twitter ads out or Facebook ads out and all that. We really had to make things happen that were out there. And then that one element that we were talking about before, the young adults and the supporters clubs, we had people coming to us who had that same passion. We want to see this sport grow and survive. And we went to a lot of what are now called the American Outlaws chapters. But back then it was Sam's Army that were U.S. soccer fans. Because U.S. soccer was, of course, just come off the World Cup and was really had a lot of fan base behind it. So we had a lot of those fans that we cultivated into or they cultivated themselves into a supporters club called the Screaming Eagles. And they became ambassadors for us. We didn't even have a full staff yet. And they were coming to us saying, you've coming to us and saying, hey, do you have flyers we can hand out? Can we go and be in this parade that we know is going to be coming up next week? We'll, we'll represent you guys. We'll wear scarves and we'll walk the street for you and do things like that. So we had fans that were coming to us that wanted to be part of that movement as well. So you have to look for that. You've got to find those fans that are already there, sort of that are ingrained in the soccer side of it. In some of the other markets that I've worked in, we've had to go to the uh, the English supporters clubs that, that meet at the different pubs and the bars and talk with them about, hey, we're going to be your local team. You know, we don't have to be your favorite team if you're a Man United fan or a Newcastle fan or a, a Chelsea fan, but we'd love to be your second team. You know, uh, this is, I'm talking about Fresno in particular. There were three or four different bars around town there that each had their own following and had their own fan base that would go. And we would walk into all four of them with all of our flyers and our kit gear and all of that to put out in front of them to get them interested in our club. So yes, they might be an Arsenal fan or a Man U fan or a Chelsea fan on the weekend as they're watching the games at 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. or whatever it is on the West Coast out there. Uh, but then come Saturday night, they were going to come to a Fresno FC game. So yeah, you have to kind of look for the fans first to get it started, build good branding. And then once you get the, the spark, you know, the fire lit with the spark, then you just keep fanning the flames and keep doing all those other things to get out there in the community and work with it. I think it's interesting too, Fred, because you, you said it again, right? You got to go out and do these things. You got to go meet with people. You got to go. Uh, and, and I did a lot of that in the early going, um, as I've talked about on, on our podcast, where you got to take every meeting, you got to, you got to, you got to be out there. So people see you. And when people see me, I'm, Hey, how's soccer going? And then I'm instantly back into, into the mode and um, we'll get back to that at some point. But I, I think that's one thing I'm taking from this is just, you've got to put the time in, in the evenings and the, and, and you got to be out there. You know, we can't sit back behind our computers and all the Facebook ads and Twitter stuff is, is great, but it doesn't, it's not the same connection you need to make with people. I think that's, that's one thing I'm really, really kind of picking up from this chat. And I, and I, it probably more so than our other chat, Fred, to be honest with you. Yeah. So, yeah, we're talking a little bit more about the fan side of things here. Yeah, we always say, too, yeah. in the marketing side of it, likes don't equal butts and seats. So That's right. A little different yeah, in this and, world right now, but mm-hmm. uh, for, for the most part, that was always an equation. We said, look, we can get a million likes, but until they show up and buy a ticket. It doesn't count for one thing. Yeah. Absolutely. What, 
Yeah. I, I mean, no, I, I was going to ask, uh, Fred, you're involved a little bit with NISA, uh, which is something you and I talked about. And um, we obviously, with the Midwest Premier League, are an affiliated league, and our club is in that league. And um, can you talk a little bit about NISA and, and some of uh, your role within the league? And um, I guess without spilling any NISA news, just kind of just touch on your involvement at this point. Yeah, I'm, I'm good at spilling. I knock things over all the time. So, <laughs> no, yeah, and, and thank you for bringing that up. Nisa is, is, uh, came to me initially through another contact. Oddly enough, somebody we met through social media who, said, who introduced me to somebody there that works with Nisa that said, you should talk with this guy. He's got a pretty good sense of things that are happening in the country and with soccer right now. And so we started a discussion and they said, hey, we'd love you to become part of this new project that we're talking about. And Nisa's had a little bit of a struggle once they first got it going after the resurrection of the NASL kind of uh, uh, didn't really happen. And they split off from USL and got into the fights with us soccer and all that. But uh, again, Peter Wilt, that same name comes up again, he and Jack Cummings uh, who's passed on now, but they had a concept of let's build a league that, not only will be nationwide, but it will be based around independent clubs and allowing each of those clubs to rise up and be the biggest clubs they can be. And if there is a professional interest there to, to put a pro team out there, then we want to culture, we want to uh, help that encourage that along. And so NISA came about in the last year or so and, and uh, was up to, I believe 12 teams or 13 teams before COVID a couple of them have pulled back but we'll be back again in the spring. Uh, and they hope to be at about 14 to 16 for next year at the NISA pro level, as they're calling it now, which will be the nationwide full professional league at third division in U.S. soccer. But underneath that, and you mentioned the affiliations now with a lot of the amateur club or leagues rather around the country, we have the Gulf Coast Premier League, the Eastern Premier League, and then right there in the Midwest, the Midwestern Premier League that are affiliates of NISA and so in between those two, NISA Pro and these amateur affiliates, NISA wants to create something that would be sort of an incubator league that would allow teams who have an ambition to maybe move up to the NISA level and become a full professional side, but not quite there yet. Um, need to start honing their ways to become a full professional side, to build in ticket sales as part of their strategy, build in different parts of the things we've just been talking about in that, as well as on the field too, and coming up with quality sides and that. So they've developed this concept called NISA Nation. And it's essentially soccer leagues, mini soccer leagues that will break, that will open up around the country that will then all be underneath the same umbrella with the ultimate goal down the road of promotion relegation that big, huge topic that everybody that's involved in soccer is aware of, but doesn't really want to address. Well, NISA is the club or the league that is addressing it. So this NISA nation is really the crux of all of that. And our hope is that uh, there will be about 60 to 80 teams ultimately within this NISA nation level. And from that, there'll be pro teams, NISA pro teams that'll come out of that. And then as NISA pro continues to develop and pull more and more clubs up, there'll be even more elite levels above that too. And then who knows down the road where that will lead, whether it'll be a crossover between USL and even MLS, but those are right now considered closed leagues. NISA would be an open league. And this NISA nation concept is the one that we just launched about a month ago during the, um, uh, the NISA cup, the, the finals for the, the championship this year that was on BN Sports Network and all that. Very successful. Didn't have any fans in the building, but uh, no positive COVID test, which was a huge plus. 
uh, and great exposure on BN for the whole league. And, and since then, we've put out a survey to all the clubs in the country. And I know, John, you filled one out for DeKalb uh, County there that just asked some basic questions, you know, and, and what the ambitions of these clubs are. Did they have the right facilities right now? You know, uh, different types of questions that are around uh, helping us decide, okay, these are clubs that we should be talking to seriously about this next level. Uh, and that's where we are, are right now. We're doing outreach. And that's what they brought me aboard to do is to start reaching out to a lot of these different clubs and regions, along with a few other very talented people that have done this on the full expansion level for NISA. Now we're talking down at the club level in different areas. And uh, as I said, uh, it's going very well so far. Uh, we had somewhere around 60 who had filled out that first survey, and there's about another 20 or so that been identified beyond that that we know are the right types of clubs for this league, and we just need to coax them a little bit more. And, and our hopes are, are to have this league up and running sometime next spring, if depending on what happens with COVID and opening of stadiums, uh, more realistically, fall of next year and fall of 2021, we'll have probably three or four regions by that point. And uh, we'll see where it goes from there. But the concept is great. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to join on is my goal is to see the growth of this game. And this is the fastest growing area of the game right now. So I've been, I've been trying to figure out um, because I'm no expert by any means at, at what we're doing here with, with any of this, but I try to learn from my mistakes and the mistakes of others and the good thing, other, the good things that other clubs are doing. And, and from a business side of it, I always, I sometimes am too conservative because I will, even though it, within our club, I'm the aggressive one who says, let's do this. And everybody has to rein me in when I get in league meetings and other things, I'm the one that always reins people in because people have this idea of pro rel and they have this idea of, well, if I could just spend more money on this and do this and this and this. And I, I, I'm very negative sometimes because I think um, we have to continue to build slowly for an amateur club to go to NISA just for an example, um, by my best guess and estimates here, we would have to do 50 times the revenue we're doing now. Probably very and, close. And that's, yeah. Yes. So 50 times what, what Nick is doing as a volunteer and what I'm doing as a volunteer and our awesome staff. And it's like, we are, we are either need somebody to drop a bucket of gold coins <laughs> And even then I don't know how to do it because I have a job and I'm not going to go do that full time anyway. Even that doesn't solve the problem. You know, you still got to have the boots on the ground as we've talked about. Right. And I think that there's a large step between where an amateur club like us is and even NISA division three at a pro level, it's a huge step. And I think having an intermediate step is a good idea. Um, I'm, I'm concerned, I'm not, not concerned, it's not the right word, I think. It's, it's going to be fun to see how it develops regionally because part of what makes us work, obviously travel is always something, but if you took five teams out of the Midwest Premier League and put them in one region of NISA Nations, that's still a lot of travel. It's a big country. Mm -hmm. And so I think obviously that, those are things you guys are talking about and, and trying to identify. And I'm always advocating for just because you maybe your club thinks you can do it maybe it isn't the best step maybe maybe going from this league to this league isn't the right move for you yet you know because i i just hate to see nick you've seen a ton since you and i've been doing this for a couple of years how many teams disappear because it's it's mm -hmm. it's just us it's volunteers it's whatever where to take those big steps forward needs to be very slow and 
sort of nurtured. And I think it's great, Fred, having somebody like you that's kind of involved and, and hopefully you're, you know, you're still involved once the teams get in, because I think that's the kind of resources that what you're, what you've shared today, those are the kinds of things that these clubs need to really already have figured out before they take the step to Nisa Nation, because it's just, even that, if it's a, if it's a longer season, you're going to spend more money, you got to generate more money. You got to, you know, so I think, I think there's, there's a lot of cool things to it. I'm very interested to see how it, how it all plays out. And I'm glad there's been some positive feedback so yeah, far. Yeah. I mean, the term that's, that's brought up and tied to this league a lot is an incubator league, very much like a, a small business incubator, you know, where you you have the, the help and guidance of the, the bigger guys in town or the people that have done this before to really help you through all of the steps in that. And a lot of it can be done. You're, I think you're very close on those numbers you were talking about going from, you know, 50 times revenue to get up to a NISA level, even think, you know, think about going to USL championship or MLS level, what you have to do. Um, and I've seen that mm-hmm. happen too, and seen clubs struggle mightily trying to make that all happen. But this incubator level in between this NISA nation, I think is going to give these clubs that think they can do it the chance to try without going broke. And also the other way, if somebody goes all the way up and has a couple of great seasons and moves up and wants to give NISA pro a a go at it and can't quite make it happen, they can fall back to this NISA nation level afterwards. You know, there's not going to be any repercussions of that because it's all still within the NISA umbrella. So you've got some of these clubs, as we mentioned, you know, having some struggles with COVID and that because they've lost their revenue base too on tickets and that you might see them in NISA nation in the first season to get their legs back under them and to start to get the crowds back and to get some of those other streams of revenue, the other, the added exposure to be able to sell jerseys and kits, you know, not only in their own backyard, but around the country because people start to see their brand and see the exposure that's out there. And, you know, kids that play college ball in those markets now come back and play there after they've gone out to try their legs professionally with another club and didn't make it, they come back and they're a a local hero that has a chance to make good again uh, same thing for players. It'll be an incubator leg for players to kind of build their way back up and get ready to jump up to the next level again. Um, so we're, we're excited on that side of it. And we won't just walk away from these teams and say, Hey, you know, again, there's no entry fees in the league, which makes it very nice that you don't have to worry about coming up with an expansion fee right off the bat. You know, it's, it's built up through, there'll be regular dues. I'm sure that'll be tied into it, but it won't be exorbitant. It'll be on the same levels of the, the other division three, division four level teams uh, in the other leagues, you know, comparable to that. So you'd be spending the same money. And the nice thing is it's year round, um, which some of these leagues are more spring to summer leagues. You could still actually stay within the league that you're in and give this a go for the rest of the year for those that have the, the resources to do that. To be able to play a spring season or fall season and a spring season, so definitely a lot of advantages to it. And as somebody on Twitter the other day said, "Well, somebody's got to step up and do this because U.S. Soccer hasn't done anything yet in terms of mandating, you know, movement between levels of their their pyramid, as it were. Uh, this is its own pyramid within the third division within NISA to help build out the game in some of these other areas. And you know, so I can't divulge." any of the clubs really we're talking with yet, but there are some very long storied clubs that are interested in this because it's the first time anybody's ever come to them and said, we don't want you to change a thing. Do what you're doing. Let's just see if we can't make you more of a national brand now. Um, And travel is a big concern of that. We want to keep the travel close by. Uh, We're looking at probably maximum of about a 500 mile range 
particularly out west. Some of the teams out west are a little further spread, even though that might break into its own little sub areas of, uh, say, Northern California and Southern California, where you could play in a cluster of clubs up there where you guys are in the the upper Midwest area would be the same thing. There'd be a cluster of clubs up there. So your travel would not be exorbitant. And if there is a postseason tournament or playoffs of that, the league is looking at, you know, subsidizing that too, so that a team wouldn't take a hit or, or, uh, you know, tank at the end of a season, just so they don't have to pay the expenses to fly, say to uh, Detroit or to Florida, wherever the tournament would be held, uh, that'd be covered for them. So a lot of those things have been yeah. put into place and thought about ahead of time. And, you know, we want to see this be successful. We don't want three dozen clubs to come in and flop in the first year and be back to zero. We want to see it, you know, nurtured and grown and we'd rather uh, crawl before we walk and walk before we run uh, to make sure that it gets to the level we think it can become um, and become the story of soccer in this country right now. So one thing too that that you and I talked about, Fred, and I've thought about it a few times since we spoke was was I think uh, that we've talked a lot about the open system with with Misa, and you said something that I've always thought, but nobody else seems to want to say is that the closed MLS system. And I'm not putting words in your mouth; you can clarify if I'm wrong. But that that was necessary at the time, and and I think you even had said like. There isn't necessarily anything wrong with it now. It's just different. And there's maybe room for both and both an open and closed system here. And I guess I know um, Nick always hates to talk about ProRel in the U.S. because it's just it's a topic that goes nowhere. But as far as as far as some of that with the closed system and stuff, I mean, I'd love to hear your your thoughts on uh, the coexistence of whatever is the right fit for everybody. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, you know, and, and I have to kind of take this hat off that I've got now on my head for the lower division clubs and that, and, and building up through it and put back on my MLS hat, because for the longest time I was very much the proponent of MLS and doing what they did in those early years with a um, single entity ownership, you know, where the owners didn't own teams, they owned a portion of the league because that was necessary. Soccer was too fragile. We saw it, grow to huge, huge numbers in the old NESL days of the 80s with crowds of 60, 70,000 for Cosmos games with Belay and Greif and Beckenbauer and all the stars that they had in that league, you know, and, and seeing it go to the roof and then collapse overnight. Um, MLS didn't want that to happen. So they took a lot of lessons from those days and they rebuilt MLS in the right way and that everybody owned a part of the team. You were only as successful as the lowest team in the ranks. So way back when the Kansas city wizards, as they used to be called now sporting KC used to draw 5,000 people in Arrowhead stadium that held 70,000 people for playoff games. It was crazy. And so the league had to figure out ways to bring those lower teams up and keep everybody on the same level. And I think they've done a good job of that. At the same time, they've also raised their pricing of these newer franchises that have come in because now they feel that they are at a point where they can do that. And there is interest, you know, the last franchise just sold for what, 200 and almost 300 million in Charlotte. Uh, I heard, but they're not wrong no. either. Right. Fred, they're not wrong. The market is right. Exactly. The price. There's, there's, so, it's not like everybody, it just dried up. However, in those earlier years, because the league is still somewhat fragile, it was very fragile. It almost collapsed in 2001 um, when they had to, to uh, contract uh, Miami and Tampa Bay. Uh, and then they've grown steadily since then. 
but yeah, I mean, it, it's as long as there are owners out there to pay that money, the problem came in with the promotion relegation argument was that you could not very well tell somebody to spend $200 million to get into the league, then have a stadium plan together that was going to be another two to $300 million and then have to start putting money into player development or player acquisition at a very high price tag with designated players that were now coming in from Europe and all your marketing and your staffing. And that you could be talking at, you know, half a billion to three quarters of a billion dollars before you even kick a ball. And you couldn't tell an ownership group that was going to put that kind of money in to say, Oh yeah. And by the way, if you stink, uh, you're going to be playing in no, no, the offense to Charleston, South Carolina or Richmond, Virginia, or, you know, one of these other smaller cities because they're going to move up and you're going to move down. Well, then why would they ever put money in those big markets and spend that kind of dollars? They would put it in the lower levels, the lower divisions first and build the team on the field better and let it move up and then take the value of being in that higher league. So it protected itself in those early years by doing it that way it's probably grown to the point now where it's going to be very, very difficult until you get a super strong second division. And I've been in USL as well, working with teams it's getting there, but the gap is still, you know, light years between division two and division one right now. So you've got to close that gap before you can ever talk about moving a team up and moving a team down second and third division, a little bit closer. Um, and I think you're seeing that through the USL uh, league one, as they call it, which is the third division, same as NISA. Um, the problem there is they have not built that out well enough, uh, as I think we're starting to build now with NISA Nation and, and how NISA is developing. You know, you're looking at a, a level there that's having their teams in the east having to fly all the way out to Tucson, Arizona for a game. Um, and Tucson's having to fly, you know, every other week they've got to fly all the way across country and they don't have budgets for that. So that their third division has not really been built that well with that good of an understanding and then the other thing that's happening too is those mls teams who have decided to put teams into usl are now starting to look at the structure and saying what well, maybe it's better if we just keep our teams in house and build a reserve league so there's a little bit of disruption there too so the whole promotion relegation argument is going to be very very muddy for a long long time but i think as we said earlier somebody had to start somewhere and i think nice has probably got the best concept of how to do that and how to get as we've been talking, the amateur level or semi-pro level clubs, the opportunity to move up if they want to move up. And then if they have good success, you look at Detroit and Chattanooga that are in NISA Pro that are drawn four or 5,000 a game or more that have done WeFunder campaigns and raised millions of dollars through them, you know, and are selling jerseys and merchandise and things like that and making money. They're now full professional sides and they don't have those $300 million price tags to start out. How far can a club go in the current system, do you think, without... Um, well, right now, the factors. way U.S. Soccer has it structured pretty much only to Division th through Division Three, um, Division Two USL clubs, now I understand the latest ones are going for about $25 million, uh, the cities they're talking with, and the same sort of plans that MLS had in place, like you have to have a stadium plan and you have to have different uh, you know, requirements and that you can no longer play in multi-sport stadiums like baseball stadiums and that they want to, to sort of standardize it. So you're now talking that USL to be a, say a Louisville, which has done a great job of it, built a stadium and all of that uh, will be upwards of 50, $60 million to get to that level. So difficult, very difficult to move from a third division where, 
you know, you're probably going to be working on a budget of between 50 and maybe a max of a hundred thousand at the highest level of third division to jump up to 50 million. <laughs> it's, it's a huge jump and that's, it's all come to the dollars really from a uh, pl- play on. Yeah. I mean, exactly. No exactly. The, exactly. The there's there's, there's so the many teams that are in fat. the UK and you know, from, you know, the, from being over there and that, that get that promotion call, but if they're not prepared for it, they just know they're going to be right back down again in a year because they can't spend the money on the players. They, their facilities are not up to par and all yes. that. The ones that survive, you have to look at, say, a Leeds United, where um, uh, what's the, uh, the Italian guy's uh, name? He's yes. done a tremendous job there. He took a brand, Leeds United, that was known you know, many years back as one of the elite brands, uh, but fell in disfavor and you know didn't put the right players on the pitch and kind of collapsed down to all the way down to third division there. And he's slowly, but surely put some money into it and built it up and built it up. But by the time he he's in the premiership now, but if he wants to stay in the premiership, it's going to start to cost him multi-million dollars a year, you know, and, and who knows whether he'll get the return on that. So mm-hmm. the numbers they talk about in, in the championship in terms of uh, percentage of revenue going towards wages and salaries, et cetera. I think one one club, I think, was quoted at a hundred and ninety percent of their yeah. income was going on wages. Right, just on the gamble of getting into the, into the Premiership. It's just, it's crazy. And you know, I, I've come from a place of promotion relegation, and I love it. And my my club has suffered and benefit, benefited from promotion relegation, but it is not the be all and end all. And it just, it's a rant for another day. Where it comes back to community, I think, right. just. You play to the size of your community, and if you if you've got ten percent, the, mm-hmm. the Iceland model, for want of a better analogy, right? Ten percent of their of your community comes out to support you. That should be good enough, and let's try and get it to fifteen. And it doesn't matter if that's ten percent of a hamlet that's got a hundred people, or ten percent right. of, of New York City, right? That's exactly, your, that's your, exactly that's right. And being proud of uh, you know, your your community pride showing when whenever that team is on the field, whenever it's on the pitch, and then the other thing yeah. too that we didn't really talk about, but. There is sort of a promotion relegation already in place in this country, and it doesn't get a lot of notice, uh, and it should. And this year is the first year in, I think, 114 years, and it wasn't played. It was the U.S. Open Cup, similar to the FA Cup uh, in England and that, where that fourth division team mm-hmm. could get on a run and you know move up and end up playing against those top teams. The problem has been here since MLS has been around that it's been so weighted heavily towards the MLS teams to get home field advantage, to get – schedule preferencing uh, to get, you know, all the right things in their place where they pretty much are guaranteed of advancing through. And there's been only one team in the 25 years since it's been played during MLS that a, a non MLS team has ever won it. Uh, and only three times when a non MLS team's even been in the final uh, that's one of the areas where you can see a little bit of equivalency there and see a, a, a you know, an up and coming team in the lower divisions have a shot at least of getting that sort of exposure NISA has added something called the independent cup that they just played last year for the first time, very, or this year, rather for the first time, very successful uh, in spite of COVID times and that, but having amateur level clubs playing against the NISA pro teams. And in one of the cases, uh, one of the amateur clubs won the whole region. They want to continue that as part of this NISA nation uh, effort as well. So these NISA nation clubs will move into the independent cup and play against higher level professional teams and potentially even be inviting other teams outside of NISA to play in this, uh, which would be interesting, you know, so very much like a, an open cup, almost a secondary competition running alongside of that, where you could have the, 
the big guys come into town as it were for a weekend to play your, your smaller amateur club teams and the amateur club teams have the chance to make the revenue on that, not the other way around, which is the way the, the open cup, the Lamar hunt open cup has become that the very small teams generally get passed over to, to host games because they don't have the right facilities or the wherewithal to host a game, but that's your revenue maker. That's a, a, you know, a great way to, to get exposure and, and revenue in, not just for that one single game, but just, uh, you know, the whole run, uh, as long as they can stay in it. Well, no, I think that's, I think, you, I think you, uh, you hit it. I mean, I think that's Nisa's doing things differently. We actually, the Midwest premier league affiliation, uh, we get two spots in the independent cup. Mm-hmm. So, we're figuring out through our competition committee, you know, DeKalb and who other get to go. Um, so, so <laughs> no favoritism, that's, right? That's one of the cool. <laughs> well, it's our podcast. We can. Say yeah, that's want. right. It's my ball. Um, I take it. Take it on the home. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So no, but I think that's I think that's going to be a fun thing to watch develop. And I think uh, I think obviously there's a lot of um, a lot of different ideas of the best way, but but you know there there's already been one way tried. I'm glad there's a group of people trying it a different way. And mm-hmm. well, as, as Nick started to say a little bit, you, you go with your community and what we've been saying, Nick keeps telling me this, the community will tell us where we go. Right. Or the, and the community will just like the market will, will tell you what to, what to charge. What the, what you can do, what the market will bear. And that's where our club is going to grow. And I think I always advise, you know, other clubs the same way. Like I know it sounds fun to go do the open cup, but it's expensive. And what are you really going to get out of it? Right. And if you can't figure, if you don't have the marketing savvy to turn it into revenue or promote it or turn it into something tangible for your community, then, then what is it? Right. It's a friendly, it really doesn't matter. So there's, there's a lot of ways to look at it. I think I, I always enjoy talking to people like you that have done much bigger and different things in soccer than I ever have. And, um, and picking your brain. And I, uh, I know we, we need to um, make sure people know how to get a hold of you as well. Always on Twitter. Anybody that's followed the game, and I've, <laughs> lately I've been following an awful lot of smaller clubs as I've been working with Nisa here and trying to, to find out who and, uh, and where we might be looking at putting some of these Nisa Nation clubs. So my Twitter handle is at Fred Mathis. That's F-R-E-D. My last name has two T's in it. It's M-A-T-T-H-E-S. That's my Twitter handle. I'm usually always on there at some point or another. Um, my email is also f mathes f m a t t h e s dot f m at gmail dot com. That's the same one I use as part of my consulting, and I've actually created my own website that isn't real strong yet. But uh, you know, I don't have a whole lot of, whole lot of stuff to put up there yet. But uh, it's called it goes by f m dot com. There are two s's in the middle there. F m p r o s s o c c e r dot com. And that's on my Twitter handle as well, too. Twitter's usually the first place that people reach out to me. And then, uh, you know, I see them on there and we start a conversation. And I think that's how John and I first started to, to catch up with each other, too. I saw what Takel was doing and liked a couple of articles and we had some conversations back and forth. And uh, all of a sudden we're, we're on podcast together. So, Fred, if you had one piece of mm-hmm. advice for our club, screw the rest um, of the country. Enjoy the game. What would that be? Love the game. You know, just uh, whether it's a five or six year old who's stepping out on the field for the first time, or it's a 60 year old like myself that used to play it and love it and can barely get out of a chair now because my hips and knees are gone. Uh, Just love the game. 
And, uh, you know, if you can get your fans to follow that and your players that play for you, follow that. Um, one thing that I've been thinking about long-term, right. We have this tremendous buildup to the 2026 world cup and it's, it's a long ways away, but it's not that far away. And, uh, and I, I may, maybe we don't have time, but I'm thinking we have to all as a soccer culture and community of teams. And I don't care what league you're in, we need to be really ramping up to capitalize on the momentum of, of that world cup here again, or part of it here or whatever. Um, obviously the, every world cup year, men's and women's is a good soccer year for, for the game. But I think that's a, that's a cool thing. Is there anything uh, because you're a little older than me that you've experienced in some of these ups and down years of major tournaments where we can capitalize as a full soccer community with the excitement of those tournaments. Uh, I think the rest of the world is going to be very, very surprised when we get to 2026 to realize how strong a nation that we are as the U S and also Canada and Mexico are included in this one this time too. But um, because in 94, it was a novelty. It was something to do in the summer. It was, everybody knew the world cup was huge and big, but again, we didn't have a division one league that people were following on a regular basis yet. That was came out of the 20, 1994 world cup. So it was kind of non-soccer fans saying, yeah, I'll give this a look. And it took off. And just as we said earlier, you get somebody in the stadium and they enjoy a good game and they see a, a good match on the pitch, then they're going to come back. And that's, I think, 2026 is you've already got those people now. Now it's building on top of that. And the rest of the world realizing that, hey, in whatever it's been, 26 plus six years, 32 years, look at how far this nation has come in the world of soccer. You know, we were sort of just uh, infants as, a, as you were, as it were back in 94. And now we are grown adults playing this game along with everybody else in the world and competitively on the field. I think by then we're going to have a very strong side with the generation that's playing now. Um, you know, we already do that on the women's side far and away. We've proven that the men's side is coming around very strongly now too. And I think that, you know, the competition side will drive it. You saw that in uh, uh, 19 go all the way back to 1980 talking about a long time ago the u.s and hockey uh you know how could this u.s team ups beat this uh russian team that was such a huge monstrous team and uh the whole country got excited and electrified by that that's what will happen in 2026 it'll happen before then as we go through qualifying and build up and i think a 2022 world cup uh, if it all happens in the right time frames because of this stuff that we're going through now I think it's going to be a, a big eye opener for a lot of fans around the world too, as to how good the U S is and how much the sport has grown in this country. And so just keep working on that growth. I, I have reservations and that's a different rant for a different podcast about whether the people at the top of the game, generally not talking about specific leagues or anything are the right people to capitalize on it. But right. the fact that it's right. coming has to be a good thing, right? There's, there's got, there's got to be ways of getting some of that, Involvement in some of that excitement down into the lower levels, into the regional and the national and the independent leagues. But whether that results in MLS or whatever entity comes next becoming the second game in the, in the country, I don't know. Whether MLS ever gets into, into that quartet of major sports like you, the you yeah. to earlier on, I, I don't. You know, I think as we but said earlier, anybody that's been around the last twenty-five years uh, on this planet has ne has never known a time when there wasn't professional soccer at division one level in the u.s now they grow up with it 
And by 2026, you're talking, mm-hmm. you know, those those people will be adults with younger kids of their own now going through it. They'll be second generation living and breathing professional soccer along with all the other sports. So it can only become a bigger and bigger part of what they're doing, what everybody's doing. I love it. I think it's great. Fred, I, I thank you very much for uh, for joining us. Nick, did you want to mention just real quick that we beat Union Dubuque again in another contest? <laughs> uh, I mean, it doesn't feel true. like needing mention. It's just sort of like breathing these days, isn't it? Now, for those of us, for those who weren't listening, so Union Dubuque and ourselves had a, sh- a charity shirt sale-off. I've always struggled with how to phrase it. Um, both teams designed a special limited edition jersey. Um with proceeds going to local good causes and charities and whatnot. We ran it for two weeks. Um, Dubuque, God love them. All 31 of the people that have internet access out there bought a jersey. We thank them for it. Um, the good people of DeKalb and wider bought 41 jerseys, I believe, which you know is a resounding success for us. So we win <laughs> yet again. I was such. Um, and that's about, the, that's about the sum of it. Cliff, if you're listening, regards. But, you know, that's the truth of it. Um, but, yes, thank you to everybody. Twitter and everywhere else will be updated with the final scores and what we're doing with the money and et cetera, et cetera, and the pennants that Cliff has to pay over in Dubuque. I love it. Local, Local rivalry. And I did re- yeah, love it. Yeah. Oh, you know what? And, we, and we've talked, we've had Cliff on the podcast. We, yeah. we just love to beat on each other because – that's if we're not going to have you said enjoy the game we enjoy the banter just as much just as much exactly that's part of the game Yeah, we'll have ourselves a laugh. Hooray!